Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the writer, actor, comedian, bon vivant and boulevardier, Jean-Luc Roberts. <laughs> well, yes, I suppose. Bon vivant. I mean, yeah, it depends what sort of day you catch me on. If I'm bon, I'm bon. If I'm not bon. I'm... Can you be a mal vivant as well? I then? guess that, uh, that's my autumn style. Yeah. Mal, mal vivant. <laughs> Sounds like an excellent sort of aftershave or something, doesn't it, really? Malvivon. <laughs> yeah, or, with that Johnny you... Depp's face just behind it, glowering. <laughs> Live the bad life. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you had a good Edinburgh, didn't you? It went very well. It was a real um, delight, really. Are you uh, bringing it in, as the theatrical community uh, uh, says? When does this go out? Uh, a good question. Well, it's going out. It's, so. go, it's going out exactly now, right, listener. Yes. The time you're hearing um, it. I'm Welcome doing to the Thursday Soho morning theatre with my show. All I want to do is FX gunshots with an FX gun reloading and an FX cash register and perform some comedy from the 10th to the 15th of December, and then I'm taking it on national tour for, in the new year. Fantastic. Brilliant. You're not known for um, easy show titles, are you? Well, I decided <laughs> to make it my thing. My general rule is, if I come up with an idea and I think, oh, you can't do that, then it's probably quite a good idea. No, yeah. that's not what titles look like. But you're working, you're working in a field of absurdism, so yeah. if, you, if you start with a title, people can't say they weren't warned. Well, that's another big part of it. You, you want to put off the people who won't like it as much as you're trying to get in the people who will. If you, if you call it like the giggle show, people might throw things. Yeah. One of the most exciting things watching you uh, develop as a, as a performer, I remember working with you as a writer and sort of seeing you with your early shows and things, you moved from being very... I'm about to say cerebral, very, very verbal. And then you've just gone further and further into something very, very physical, very challenging, uh, involving clowning, uh, and, and very, very personal. And every single move appears to have satisfied you more and 
brought the shows more. He's frowning. Listeners. No, I know. He's I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it. Yeah, I started as a very. I'd stand on stage. Very my performance certainly very dryly, generally doing one-liners. I, can't, I think I got to the point of thinking, well, you should be able to prove this. It's sort of safety mechanism. That a one-liner, of course, is the one joke you. It's the closest I think you can get to an equation with writing. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't. It's not necessarily funny, but you can definitely go. Well, it's definitely a joke. You it's see how it adds it. up, yeah. and you can prove it like that. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought the performance wasn't important. And then as time went by, I realised everything I enjoyed about watching comedy and enjoying <laughs> comedy was people just being stupid. And doing clowning let me realise, oh, you're allowed to just have fun. It's allowed to be <laughs> fun. Yeah. You don't have to sort of prove everything. And so the way I look at it now really is that having fun and being stupid is what people like. And the jokes are sort of a, the icing on the cake. But that's because I came to it through joke writing. I think of writing as the least important thing to... It's a very unusual uh, route because normally if you start off as someone who, who regards... When you used to... I remember going to see one of your first shows and you had the jokes pre-prepared on cards yeah. and then delivered them as insults to the audience showing the mechanism of a stand-up saying these are pre-prepared insults. I've yeah. not... Like like people might have for a heckler. They're pre-prepared insults which you then applied to people. It was a very cerebral game of playing yeah. you know this is written. It's very rare for someone to go beyond that because if, if I'd thought of that idea I'd have stuck with it for my career. <laughs> and what's amazing is you went actually this isn't enough. It's, it's it's really admirable to take something you're really good at and then go beyond it into something which must have been frightening at first. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, th- thank you for saying that. The insults was an interesting one because I started doing that as myself when I was 20-year-old, middle-class white man, and audiences would generally get riled. Like, men especially, <laughs> sort of beta males in the audience, sometimes got angry and really? I would be scared after the gig. Yeah, because, uh, because the, this pretending to be insulting, while... Constantly undermining it. I mean, by saying this is just in order, this isn't personal, but I'd need to lower your self confidence so you laugh a bit more. <laughs> um, but some of them would not kind of would miss the joke of it. But then I started. Um, I did a show playing a kind of uh, clown version of my father uh, after he died. I, I played him sort of as I saw him when I was five years old as this huge, terrifying creature. And so I stuffed a suit with balloons. It was in this massive thing, big <laughs> fake beard. Uh, and then the insults started working much better from him because already it was being undermined. The audience knew what the game was because I looked so stupid. You're a pompous idiot, so I can take it from you. Yeah, and you're not a sort of... If you're just a smartly dressed man you really need some way of undermining it you need something else because it's not fun it's just smug I think so there was, there was that's, lovely, why, that's why jesters wore their silly striped um, clothes, presumably, because actually you've got to you've got to put yourself at one remove from the person you are in order for the being insulting to someone's face to be funnier. Yeah, I think that's true. Unless, I mean, uh, you sort of bring uh, privilege and intersectionality into it, I guess. If yeah. you're a white man and you're, you're at the top, of the, top tree, of the tree, you're, you're punching down. Then it doesn't work. If yeah. you're an outcast from society one way and you're a bouffant or something, then, oh, well, then you can do that. You can yeah. come and do it, but otherwise you have to find some way of... Well, you of, play tricks with it. I mean, it's, it's really noticeable that, that two, uh, I know that one admires the other, but the way that Stuart Lee, who's a huge admirer of Alexi Sale, worked out if he was going to wear a suit on stage, it was better if he was a bit overweight and the suit was a size too small. Yeah, yeah. And that is uh, Laurel and Hardy. That's dressing as tramps. That's Chaplin. That's saying, I'm wearing a suit, but I've, I've, I'm W.C. Fields and I've punched out the top of my hat and I look like a hobo. Mm. And you immediately go, okay, that's now taken the sting out. Yeah, and also Stuart Lee's act, stand-up act, was a lot better when he was older. Yeah. When he was, you know, slim, cool, handsome, young Stuart Lee, 
people didn't quite like it so much. He got got older and suddenly it worked because he looked like he... It was the Sadowitz thing. You sort of let Sadowitz get away with it because he's completely not aspirational. Yeah. yeah. You watch Sadowitz and don't go, oh, I want to be that smartly dressed man being horrible at everyone. You go, oh my God, I don't want to end up like that. <laughs> well, isn't the, the arrogant clown, the one that you, you've studied clowning... Uh, a lot more than me, which is more than none. Uh, your aspirational clown, your vain clown, your Ted in the Father Ted thing, the guy, the pompous guy in the middle, mm-hmm. is usually a, a sort of aspirational middle-class father figure. But he's immediately stupid. He, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a, a link there with that sort of pompous authority figure who's telling you off to something like the League Against Tedium. I saw the League Against Tedium when I was 15, Simon Munnery on top of a bus, um, <sighs> driving into Smokefield Tent on the Meadows, I think, in Edinburgh, right. while Attention Scum was projected on a screen behind him on the bus because there was a <laughs> ship on the top of the bus and he was wearing this huge top hat and a, uh, his hand, he was wearing a glove made of dildos. <laughs> and I think his opening line was, come on, I'll take you all on. <laughs> while, you know, this is blaring out Attention Scum, you are nothing, you are worthless, and then all these jokes come out. And I thought it was amazing. And that actually led me into trying to... I thought I could do that until... It was years later, I was, oh, Simon Murray is a small man wearing a huge thing. Already he is a low-status figure on stage, delicate little, like, yeah. fragile being. But he looked like somebody in his in uh, some out, in clothes that weren't his and he was pretending to be massive and powerful. There was a if Wizard of Oz thing going on. a huge, intimidating figure without all this stuff, yeah. it wouldn't have been funny. The size of the hat, I thought, was, was brilliant. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was exactly too tall. Exactly too tall. And then he had that little tube so he could blow in it and the hat would... Lengthen. So, Luke, hang on, Luke. Um, just can we just do your name for a minute here? Oh, because yeah. this is such a good anecdote. <laughs> is it? Well, I think so. So my name is John Luke Roberts. Luke's your middle name. Luke's my middle name. You're not, always... not like a, a Star Trek captain. It's not John Luke. No, it's not Jean Luc. Although in France they do get confused and assume I'm French until I try to speak French and then they know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was called Luke through my childhood. I was referred to as Luke. Then I was going to be Luke Roberts. Uh, there was already on Spotlight, the casting website, a Luke Roberts, who I believe was in Holby City. So I was going to be Lucas Roberts, I think, <laughs> which then by the time I went to take it, uh, to register it, was taken. I think I dodged a bullet there. Um, but then I tried to be John Luke Roberts, but they, there was a John Roberts as well. So they wouldn't let me be John Luke Roberts without a hyphen between John and Luke. So I ended up as John Luke Roberts, and that's now my name. Uh, but then a few years later, I went to sign up to Equity and they wouldn't let me be John Luke Roberts <laughs> because I think they had different rules on the doubling of the names or their computer system just wouldn't let it. So on Equity, I'm John Luke-Roberts. Um, it's just too complicated. It's a bit much. I was, I was saying to them, you're meant to be my union. <laughs> you're you're like meant to be helping me. me. This is my professional name. It's on Spotlight. This is what I'm cast as. Yes, we know. You're Even filling this form out is now really difficult. I can't even start. You're the only person I know who has a floating hyphen there. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't matter where it goes. I might try and get it in between some letters sometime. <laughs> yeah, why not? John yeah. Luke, row hyphen Burt's as if you're a robot. Yeah. <laughs> I could hyphenate every single letter. Yeah. <laughs> have a big like articulated name that I can whip people with like a beer snake I reckon for for next year's Edinburgh not only an unwieldy title but an unwieldy name yes that's what I need to do perfect twofer by the way the song that your show is named after I love that song and I can't work out whether I'm supposed to whether I'm allowed to sorry Mm. I'm sort of going. Is this a song? It doesn't. Does it glorify violence? I don't think it does. Oh no, does no, it? no! It's about. Uh, it's it's basically an anti. It's an anti anti immigration song. 
effectively. Oh, okay. But although, it, I mean, it's also, I don't think most people, I certainly don't use it that way in my show. It's just a song which has a lot of sound effects in and is yes. an awful lot of fun. Yes, it is. <laughs> a ton of fun. Yeah. Talking of fun and songs. Well, this also links up to your idea of, of, uh, of jokes as a formula. We're going to do probably the foremost musical mathematician of song. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, we're talking about Tom Lehrer. Tom Lehrer, yeah. You didn't even need to qualify it that much, I think. Yeah. The, the, math, the mathematics is almost incidental. Right. That's it's how like good a, a mathematical com- uh, comedy musician he is. You can't even see the formulas. No. Now instead of four in the tens place, you've got three because you added one, that is to say ten to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look in the hundreds place. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but... (laughs) The idea is the important thing. So what drew you to Tom Lehrer, or was Tom Lehrer forced upon you? I think it was forced upon me. Increasingly these days, you know, you do you sort of do publicity for whatever little tour you're doing or show, and they ask you, hey, what are your influences? And then you, I realised they were just listing the same ones. And every now and then I stumble upon something and go, hang on, I spent years listening to this and completely forgot about it in my yeah. childhood. Oh, I watched that every Friday night and I've completely forgotten how much that influenced mm. me. I was reading um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the other day for the first time in years. Went, yeah. Oh, God, I just stole your way of... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, you know the well thing in the beginning of scripts? Yeah. The writing, well, da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah, at yeah. the beginning of a line, and how I think John Finnamore does a well edit where yeah. he'll go through a script to remove the all the wells. Uh, it, what you can do, you can lose a page of a, scri- yeah. a script. If, someone, if your script's writing 31 pages and they want 30, take the wells out. I think it's. I think it originates with Adams. Yeah, if you read... It, the novel novelization of Hitchhiker's Guide. There's so many wells at the beginning of lines. So many characters start oh. saying, "Well, comma." I think oh. that might be where it comes from. It's a pause for thought. But it's effectively it's a beat for laughter, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But actually, I suppose what you're talking about there as well. What is really weird when someone tells you that. I mean, Finnamore told me this. So take out the O's and the wells. Andrew Ellard told me that as well. So take out the O's and the wells. The actors will put them in if they need them. And I just screamed, "No!" But that's the rhythm. <laughs> and it's 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 because you are always working in your head to a rhythm when you're writing comedy, because you want to make sure that the the jokes fall on the strong beats or don't fall on the strong beats. Mm-hmm. There's always a, a, a metronome yeah, yeah. going in your head. And sometimes well is your opening, is, is the one of the one, two, three, four. And I think it's also an arrow almost. The well means well, and that's shorthand somehow for, oh, this bit's the punchline. Well, yeah. this bit's the joke. It highlights that it's yeah. there somehow. Yeah. There's a sense of rhythm in, in all comedy. And I think this is why mm. um, comedy music has to be done really well because all comedy has got music in it yeah so back to Tom Lehrer I guess Mm. Um, (laughs) I realised how much I yeah I think it was my father put it like we listened to it a lot Car Journeys it was always there I can't find all the songs anymore I think Spotify is missing some of the that was the week that was ones which is quite oh and that's a very fine album oh yes my word the the numbers on this uh, I've read that he'd written 50 songs over 30 years or something Mm -hmm. and he then claims 37 which is a very Tom Lehrer thing to do. That when someone says you've written fifty songs, you go, "No, I haven't. That, that I, I did less than that." And it's that sort of very, very light under a bushel thing. That's that's sort of. I'm so drawn to. The, I think you know, as a performer, I think especially you have such ego problems. The whole need to go on stage and do things in front of an audience, be laughed at, to get validation or whatever, <laughs> feel good. It's it's a bit 
pitiful, isn't it? And so when you see these performers who just go, I'm stopping now. This yeah. doesn't matter to me that much. This isn't what I need to survive in this world. <laughs> yeah. You go, oh my God, I wish I was like you. Like Jasper Carrot, weirdly, a similar sort of figure of never did comedy because he had to, just yeah. left. Well, he, he made loads of money. Jasper Carrot, this is a brilliant fact, Jasper Carrot owned the Quantel machine, the digital video manipulation machine that was used on top of the pops to turn uh, 10cc into a wine glass and spin it off the distance. <laughs> and he owned that and he used to license it to the BBC. And that is the company that then became Celador, that then owned Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So he was a very successful businessman for a while. But he did it by, by buying the Kenny Everett video squashing <laughs> machine. Tom Lehrer, of course, retired, notoriously retired because he said satire was dead. The quote was always, oh, because Henry Kissinger had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. afterwards, brilliantly, very Tom Lehrer, he denied that was the reason. And you're thinking, that's a really good joke. Someone else would stick with that. One of the great things about Lehrer is how, just how contradictory he is. For instance, he, he's still with us. He is 90. Yeah. Um, but he encourages rumours of his death. <laughs> <laughs> and, he ke- and yet, even while he encourages rumours of his death, He's in the Santa Cruz fucking phone directory. Really? Can you, you can bring him up? him up. We should bring him up now. Yeah, he retired from performing, didn't he? Um, he's he's talked about that quite a lot since, actually, which is which is very interesting. He said, "I, I found I didn't need anonymous appreciation." God, that's how he described being in front of an audience. Yep. And he said that he, he'd done a couple of shows later in his career where he had started with the second verse of a tune instead of the first, and then said to the audience, oh, "Sorry, I've started in the wrong place. I'll go back and start again." And then started again, and then thought. And then stopped and said to the audience, look, you know the song, let's just get on to the next one. And then he thought, my heart wasn't in it anymore. Yeah. I was starting to just do it on autopilot. It's interesting talking about this with Lair, actually, because he is one of the best listeners to an audience mm. around. You hear it on all his live albums. The way he plays those laughs, the way he will stop, start again, the way a laugh will get a, a second laugh and he'll know. And obviously, he's listening so intently, talking really in the bits bridging the songs. Yeah. where he's listening so much that he can do that, play them, listen, be there with them. That To also have that mind and the mind that can construct a song to basically go, well, the laughs have to go here, here, this is where they're going to laugh, to predict the point they're laughing, yeah. which is the trick, I suppose, of those, you know, you're, you're putting together a framework and you have to kind of know where the laughs go. I've never quibbled if it was ribbled I would devour where others merely nibbled as the judge remarked the day that he acquitted my Aunt Hortense to be smut it must be utterly without redeeming social importance or the graphic pictures I adore indecent magazines galore I like them more if they're hardcore and of course there's something with comedy songs where it's not quite so important how much people laugh during the song, uh, as long as there's a big uh, applause and clap. At the end. But he still has so many laughs through these places. He knows where to put the punchlines to have room for this laugh to register without the audience worrying about cutting off the beginning of the I've next joke. I've never thought about that. It's something that Stan Laurel said. There's a very sad story about Stan Laurel towards the end of his life, and he was watching when they repeat uh, Stan and Ollie, Laurel and Hardy movies on the telly. And he'd watch them, and he'd watch them quite sadly. And as Ida or Ida, his his wife would come in and say, "Are you not enjoying this?" And he said, "They're so slow. We left space for them to stop laughing, and I'm sitting in this room on my own, and all I can do is hear the silence." <laughs> and if you're that astonishing, and they were musicians of of, of of joke, they knew when to leave the gaps. And it never occurred to me when you're running a song, it's running in three four, and there's a or mm. four four, and there's a rhythm going. You can't stop the song for the laugh. The next line's coming up when the piano reaches that bit, and yet he's left a space for them. Yeah, and sometimes he does, like, in Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, when he first drops that line at the beginning of the first chorus, which is so 
unexpected and nothing like the lovely pastoral scene that he's been painting in the, yeah. in the little verse lead up to it. Because it's such a big laugh, he's got a vamp for about four bars that he can just keep doing before he goes into the next yeah. line of the chorus. So the songs land. are built to let the laughs land. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. <laughs> Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. And then sometimes those vamps become the the uh, Oedipus Rex, the funniest bit in Oedipus Rex is probably just when he slips into that which is using it you used yeah. to that in the other song because this is where me, but then suddenly oh that's the joke that this is an appropriate bit of music for this yeah. topic. From the Bible to the popular song, there's one theme that we find right along. Of all ideals they hail as good, the most sublime is motherhood. There was a man, though, who it seems once carried this ideal to extremes. <laughs> he loved his mother and she loved him, and yet his story is rather grim. And then, and even though, and there's, there's the opposite of that as well. So in, I think, which is my favourite song of his, National Brotherhood Week, which is the first one that he performed on, that was the week that was. Yeah. Um, this is the, the American version of that was the week yeah, that was. Yeah, the American version. Yeah, they, he, he'd been sending in songs. He'd been sending in the lead sheets of the songs. And he found that, he said, the performers weren't getting it. They weren't getting the laughs. So I started to send him recordings of the songs. And that's when they said, why don't you come and do them? So... National Brotherhood Week, he's got these, the, the religion verse in that, which has got that incredibly shocking punchline, and he just absolutely motors on over the laugh. Oh, the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews, but during National Brotherhood Week... Harry's on singing the chorus. He won't let the audience have, have that yeah. moment because he knows that was an inflammatory laugh. Let's keep moving. Well, he's really brilliant. Good. He's really good. At, he's, he's, he's incredibly genteel and polite. He's doing piano music. He's doing the kind of music you might hear if you were in a bar and there'd be a guy singing in there. And there's a sophistication to that. He's not on stage with a guitar. He's not a folk singer. He's that guy. And yet he's busting taboos. Mm -hmm. And what he's playing with is the audience's sharp intake of breath on taboos. There's a brilliant New York Times quote, which is, Mr. Lehrer's muse is not fettered by such inhibiting factors as taste. <laughs> and, he reads that out in and, one of the and, albums. Yeah, too. and he says, this is, this is exactly what I want. And, and there's that revolutionary excitement of saying, what if we're not careful? Yeah. What if I'm careful about everything except offending you? What if I'm careful about the music and the words? So you can't say I've been sloppy. I'm not just going up, running up on stage and shouting, neckers. I have deliberately chosen to offend you and someone will be offended and I'm playing with that as a notion that puts him in the same category as George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and those people who are breaking taboos but you can't say they're dumb well, and it, it makes you trust that if you are offended that there's something to it you're not getting yes you, it makes you trust that there's a point to it to, and it makes you look for the satirical point or the, you know, whatever it is that's behind the thing. Well, but he said one of the things that he wanted to do with laughter, which I think is, oh, I hadn't thought this before, and it's so true. I didn't realise he'd said this. He said it's, it, there's a tribal element to it, that when someone breaks a taboo and says something about the Catholic Church or, or racism or something, he says, it's not going to convert anybody. You're, you're, you're always titillating the converted. You're not going to make someone go, oh, I was, I was in favour of war and now I'm against it. But what you do is if, if there's a laugh in a room 
to a taboo subject being broken, someone in that room who thought maybe I'm not allowed to laugh at this will go, well, everyone else is laughing. The expression of laughter at an idea gives people confidence that they're not alone. It's an incredibly powerful use of laughter. And Lehrer said that was his aim, was to make a room full of people laugh at a taboo idea so they wouldn't feel that they couldn't have that taboo idea again. There's a great... He even justifies that with offence. There's a great thing in the liner notes for the three-disc Tom Lehrer, the remains of Tom Lehrer that you can get, highly recommended. And he says, If, after hearing my songs, just one human being is inspired to say something nasty to a friend or perhaps strike <laughs> a loved one, it will all have been worth the while. <laughs> is it, I mean, is he just playing with... I mean, one of the things that's fun about it, again, it's sophistication. There's a sophisticated veneer to these. He's a trained musician. He's a clever man. And he's not being careful. The, the combination of sophistication and crudity is, I think, where the where a lot of the dynamite is in Tom Lehrer. I'm not quite sure. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about offence in comedy and sort of good offence and bad offence and the mm. things that I condone and the things that I don't. And obviously, you have to make your own rules and you have to sort of understand these. There's something... It's odd having been brought up with Tom Lehrer's offensiveness because it sort of feels the right kind, just because it's always been there in, in, the, mm. in, in the background. And it's hard to listen to the songs and think there was a point when these were genuinely shocking, although, of course, it's still there. Yeah. But there's not an unkindness to it, oddly. I think that's That's important. a very good point. Yeah. Uh, there's no... It's almost a cheerful nihilism. Yeah. <laughs> we'll all go together when we go. Yeah. yeah that's which a is defining a, song. Which is almost not... I was. I, it's such a beautiful song. Like, in, the bit in that, would, the, there's a... The, the bit when it does go off into this rhyme, oh, um, go to your respective Valhalla's, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Yeah. It's funny, but almost I go, oh, I wish that wasn't in it. Because this is a... Be- <laughs> this is... It's almost better than a comic song. It's beautiful. Yeah. And you almost don't want the bit when you're allowed to laugh because yeah. you're just... What a great... Yeah, it's like Randy Newman's Drop the Big One, isn't it? For if the bomb that drops on you... Gets your friends and neighbours too There'll be nobody left behind to grieve And we will all go together when we go What a comforting fact that is to know Universal bereavement and inspiring achievement Yes, we all will go together when we go We will all go together when we go all suffused with an incandescent glow. Can we talk about his rhymes, by the way? Because oh, yeah. fucking hell. I know. Man, can he do it. I remember First him- of all, he can do it. He- Secondly... He doesn't give a shit when he overdoes it as yeah. well. <laughs> when, he's, when he rhymes um, funeral with sooneral. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, uh, what's the other great one? In um, I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, he rhymes um, uh, Yom Kippur with Mississippi. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's well, got, he's got knowing that lovely when he doesn't have to bother to do yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not going to bother, and you're going to spot that I haven't bothered. Well, but end, I've really bothered to not the, bother. The end of the element <laughs> song where he stretches it, many more have not been discovered. Uh, discovered in Harvard yeah. and you go that's a push but you know that he's not made him again it's not a mistake mm-hmm. he's he's stretched the pronunciation there because you should enjoy the process along with him there's a there's a lovely thing I mean he was a, he's a mathematician he's a trained mathematician and he's he's fitting this thing together like he I wrote a little note saying this is a crossword and then read a, a uh, a quote from him where he, he compared it similarly saying this is there's a, there's a problem that needs to be solved in lyrics that they are they have to fit in certain places and you have to balance it's like balancing an equation one side of it has to balance the other side Mm -hmm. you can see he's got the brain that can do that he said himself the precision is the same that's involved in maths as in lyrics because he's fitting things and making them rhyme every song's 
it's almost like the letters in Scrabble. They've got a numerical value. Mm-hmm. And one of these words adds up to 15, so you need another 15 to go with it. And a 14 will do. <laughs> <laughs> you can see him sort of solving problems. And you, I suppose you're enjoying the high wire act. The comic performance is all about that balance between you don't want to trust somebody entirely, <laughs> but you do need to know that they'll be able to pull the thing off. Yeah, you don't you want, want to, to feel a little fail. uncertain, because this is meant you're laughing because this isn't normal, there's something yeah. going wrong. But you do need enough there to... <laughs> To make you trust that this is going to work. Yeah. yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remembered, I, I haven't listened to Tom Lehrer for ages before you mentioned that we should do him. So I went back and visited and I remembered it all being rhymes. I remember that, okay, I know what his, his stock in trade is the astonishing bravura, feminine, polysyllabic, internal rhyme. <laughs> and then I listened to it and thought, there aren't many of these. The capability's there, but they're, they're metered out quite carefully. And a lot of the, the joke is in the subject matter or a sort of Charles Adams-y juxtaposition of, of black humour where it's unexpected. There, there are a bunch of other tricks going on all the time. I was surprised how delightful the songs were in the gaps between the bravura rhymes. Yeah. There's still loads going on. Yeah, he tends... I mean, he's, the other thing is he's a, good, he's a good composer, isn't he? And a lot of his stuff is sort of pastiche of one thing or another, and he does it all very well. But you never really, you're never listening to the pastiche. It's not like listening to the Ruttles or Dukes of Stratosphere, where you're going, oh, well, that's a Pink Floyd one, you know, is it? Yeah. You don't go, oh, this is a, this is a musical one, this is a... I think a, I, I, I double took at the Gilbert and Sullivan that's in the Elements song. At the end of it, I went, oh, that's Gilbert and Sullivan, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I was enjoying it so much, I'd not noticed he, he'd borrowed someone else's tune. There's holonium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and cherubium and manganese and reckonine and lindum and adesium and discosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum, plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, tantalum, technetium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's gold and californium and fermium and berkelium and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium and argon, kryptonium, renunzium, nuncing and rhodium and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin and sodium. How I was th- I was listening to the elements again this morning and going, how the fuck did he do it? Yeah. He's got a lyric sheet in front of him, but then I thought, no, he's got a massive brain. I think it'd be harder with a lyric sheet in front of him. It's lovely on the live recording of that where he the, he does gets to the end of that first verse, which is just a gigantic list of elements, and in the gap between the verses, says to the audience, "That's interesting, isn't it?" <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> That's again, your, your, it's your thing. So saying he's listening to the audience. There, there's yeah. a gap. There's a there's a, a moment of silence, and he knows he can get ring one more laugh out of it. Oh, he's listening to them, he's manipulating, he's making them think he's listening to them, he's getting them to do exactly what he's expecting them to do before <laughs> pretending to have listened to you. Yeah. He's getting them to do maths in base eight. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> God, that's a hell. Jokes in base eight don't happen often enough. <laughs> I bet if you went to a robot nightclub, there'd be more jokes in base eight. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, just in terms of the ideas, because it's not just the rhymes and the cleverness and the, the verbal dexterity. They're, he's clever and he's making you think and he's, he's sticking things together. He said as well, well the quote I really like, which is, he said that there's something in rhyming that forces you to think differently, that you think of an idea for a song just because two words rhyme. And what he's talking about there is basically surrealism or absurdism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is you stick to, he said, I wouldn't have written the Werner Von Braun song unless Werner Von Braun had rhymed with down. He yeah. said, I had to write that song because, and then I, then it makes a moral judgment on the, the physics and the politics of Werner von Braun as a Nazi rocket designer who then works for America and they overlook his Nazi past. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> And he can write a song about that because of the line, it doesn't matter where they come down. And he said he wouldn't have had that idea unless those two words rhyme. And it's a little bit like rhyming or the language you're writing in is a way of automatically shaking up the ideas tin so things stick together. Things are magnetised together that wouldn't otherwise go next to each other. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea that, that there's an automated 
process, like automatic writing, that certain words stick together. And I remember saying this once as a, as a writer for hire when you're selling ideas and saying that I used to struggle sometimes to get ideas past producers and script editors and things, but the one that would always get past was a pun. That you could argue that the idea wasn't funny. You could argue that I, if I sort of said there's a Disney film about the Velvet Underground, you might go, well, that's not very funny. But when I say it's called Finding Nico, you can't argue that Nemo and Nico sound like each other. And it sounds like a better idea, even though it's just as bad an idea. And then I, I, and then you rinse every idea out of it and it becomes a sketch. And when someone goes, what a great sketch that was. And you're like, it just was about something that rhymed. Yeah, that's, it, that's interesting. I guess rhymes and puns are exactly the same there, aren't they? Just mm. enough to give you the justification to do the... You can't argue with them. But I think it, I, I think all puns, especially, and rhymes, I guess, are the same thing, and any wordplay, it all has one great meaning, which is look at how ridiculous it is that we're trying to communicate with these fundamentally flawed units. <laughs> we are doomed. We can never really truly know one another, and it is the word's fault because language is the best that we have. And you say that every single pun you make. There's something essential in there, which is that the fact they sound the same is distracting. It's like going, oh, shiny. Go, no, the meaning. Yeah, What's about yeah, the, the yeah, meaning? The, no, yeah. they sound the same. Now I'm going to go and play with these two words over here. Oh, you've gone. I wonder if you could start making puns from non-verbal communication. <laughs> if the, I, what the equivalent would be. Oh, I guess it's just not waving, but drowning. That's a non-verbal pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My favourite pun, which I'm just going to chuck in here because we'll quote bits of things until we giggle and blah, 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 is on, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, when Stephen Fry was on and they were doing the announcements for the guests arriving at the Painters and Decorators Ball. (laughs) And Stephen Fry said, um, uh, will you welcome that ubiquitous royal libertine filthy prince everywhere? (laughs) (laughs) And it's the fact that he bothered to do the scaffolding at the front of it that stood the thing up. Set up your joke. There's something great about the music of uh, musical comedy being sticky in your brain. that That's a sticky phrase. Ubiquitous royal libertine is a sticky phrase. The, the words fall well together. And filthy, filthy prints everywhere is a lovely sticky phrase. And when, when you're talking about musical comedy, a lot of it is because the, the phrases in it are catchy, like a catchphrase. You'll remember them and you'll listen to them again and again, but they'll stick in your head. And, and uh, talking about, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, one of my favourite riffs, comic riffs I've ever seen was in was a Graham Garden, I assume it's Graham Garden someone said recently he thought it was Muir and Norden but I think it's Graham Garden wrote it for one of the goodies books which was the cast list of White Christmas and someone says can you write down who was in White Christmas and a list comes back and it's I can do this off the top of my head it's Emma Dreaming, Arthur White, Chris Muss Jess Likedy, Juan Sui Hugh Sterno <laughs> Wendy Treetops Glisten and Children Lizanne Two Ears Lay Bell, Cindy Snow, Mayor Daysby, Mary Ann Bright, and May Hall York Reese, Mrs. B. White. And I can <laughs> do that having read that when I was six because the rhythm of it yeah, is amazing. Yeah. And all those names sound like the lyrics to White Christmas. But it's sticky in your head in a way that I used to wonder why you'd publish the script book to The Office. I mean, The Office is very, very funny and very well crafted, but it's not in the weight and rhythm of comic prose, 99% of it. It's realistic and recognisable and it's good character comedy. I'd say it wasn't... uh, I don't think 
the office really is realistic. There was this idea that it was naturalism, <laughs> when in fact it was very particular new rhythms, yeah. which sort of then seeped into everything and spoilt them for a while. Um, ways of speaking which tricked you into thinking they were naturalistic, when in fact they were just as unnatural as every other bit of comedy yeah. writing. It was just a new mode. Maybe I'm being unfair. There, there, there seemed to be no, I, but, a massive difference between that very arch, very Tom Lehrer musical way of writing that is filthy prints everywhere and, and Emma Dreaming After White Christmas as a mode of comic writing and then something which is where the essence of the comedy seems to be less in the words but you're right actually no, the essence of comedy is in the words in the rhythms it always is rhythm maybe I'm being a, I'm being a prick I don't know. It's, it's something about patterning I think it's like a you know it's like an ornate wallpaper or so it's there's something more I mean, it doesn't. Not everything has to work in every form. And you know, if something works well in one form, it's a surprise almost. If it works well in another, yeah. So yeah. you know, if it reads well on the page, then that doesn't necessarily mean it reads well out loud. And That's a versa. terrifying lesson you learn as a as a writer. Yeah, yeah. radio theatre. Oh god, I've read this constantly. But whatever happens, you think you're a good writer, and you go, "Well, I'm a good comic writer." Then I'm sure I give this to good comic performers; they'll be able to do it. And the, the shocking thing of people, but the number of times that someone will just read something off the page, and you'll go, "Oh my god, the stresses were ch- that you in your head think that rhythm is inherent in and the writing." Yeah, all the time you come across that, and 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 sometimes of course there's a better rhythm that you didn't realise was there, and that's why you realise that people spend ages rehearsing, ideally, except in the real world where there's no time. <laughs> I don't even think ideally, though, because there's something about the freshness of the first couple of reads which you, you can't over-rehearse, and I think yeah. over-rehearsing is often actually not that much rehearsing. <laughs> this might just More be... than one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More than the first time. I think you need to... I, I think it's good to get, to get them down early. Certainly, like, when you're performing, you know, if you're doing a play day after day after day, there's a point when everything goes dead and you don't know how it's happened. Oh, right. Jokes suddenly stop working. And you don't know, you'll do three performances in a row and a joke which used to work all the time. You're obviously doing it differently somehow because they're not laughing. They always used to laugh and you don't know what to do. And the more you think about it, the worse it gets and the more the rhythm is it slips you, away. Is it you losing faith in the joke? Well, that, it's this kind of cycle. And I, I well, you will do it after that happens, happens won't you? Surely yeah, that will really what, what throw I'd you. Normally, you just drop the joke and replace it with something else. Yeah. But not in a play. You can't do that yeah, in someone yeah. else's play. They get really annoyed. Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Well, but not if they're dead. But if they're dead, <laughs> their estates get annoyed. And their estates get more annoyed than the person would have if the person was alive. Very protective of the corpse yeah. Lehrer recorded his first album which is 22 minutes long in an hour he went into a studio wow um, he said I've been playing them live in clubs for so long by then that I knew them all perfectly uh. and I just used take one of most things occasionally I'd do another take but if I did a second take I insisted that it went over the first take so there was no editing so what you're getting when you hear the album is absolutely a performance every time. How do you? F- I can't. Um, I infinitely prefer listening to the live recordings. Yes, so do I. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I know, sort of, it's it's weird. It's it sounds so strange to me to listen to the studio ones. It's odd, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. because the, the, the live recordings are that the thing that you pointed out. He's so good with an audience. Mm. He's playing the audience at the same time as he's playing the piano. Mm. It's just beautiful. You're after a reaction. Again, he's talked about this. He said, if, you, if, if I'm saying something that's supposed to be shocking or get a laugh, you need the sound of people agreeing with you to stop you losing confidence in it. Maybe the... I mean, audience laughter is a very difficult thing. People debate it a lot, but I do like the sound of people laughing. Oh, it's the, the, the truth is, you, if you, you don't really notice, if you don't find something funny, that's when you really hear it loudly. That's why people yeah. get so angry about it. But if you're finding <laughs> the thing funny, then you don't notice the audience laugh. Because it's not your tribe. It, it, it's there's yeah. a weird thing with it. an audience howling with laughter at something. It's a little bit like sitting on a train with football supporters on mm-hmm. it, where they all appear to be very excited about something, and it gets threatening. Oh, and and an audience, if, if you're not enjoying 
if there's somebody in an audience who doesn't like the comedy happening and everyone else is laughing, it's amazing how they will still... I mean, you see these... You know, somebody wrote about my show last year online. It was... Uh, I mean... Well, they said in the middle of it, I love absurdism, but this doesn't make any sense. And I thought, oh, that's, that's enough for me there. That's going on the poster. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of... I, the new show is based around that that comment, but they... um. <laughs> But I, I, there's, you can get so angry when the rest of the room is laughing and you're not. And the way that in that position you will still think, no, I'm the normal one, I'm right, I don't know who these people are or what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you type this thing out saying, look, everyone's laughing, but they're not like us, effectively. They're, they're yeah. weirdos in there, I don't understand. And my friend, years ago, when Jerry Springer, the opera, was on, was in the chorus for that. And apparently, I think I'm remembering this right, the cast all wanted to do a studio recording for the soundtrack because obviously you get paid more than that and that's the yeah, normal yeah. thing yeah. Takes longer. and um, Stuart Lee and Richard Thomas didn't want to they wanted to put out the live recording of the show of course because the comedians want the version which has the laughter of an audience mm. on and works in the proper yeah. way uh, because yeah, it's weirdly sterile it's odd yeah yeah, and even actually Lara found this uncomfortable but the sessions he did with that arranger whose name I can't remember and that he said he found that really weird to do because not only then did he not have an audience he didn't have a piano he said so I, st I was standing up to do them which I'd never done before and I didn't know what to do with my hands so I put them in my pockets and did the whole recording standing there looking very stiff and awkward and it sort of shows in the recordings I mean they're delightful but Nothing beats the live stuff. It's sort of designed for a live environment. It's not for the live thing. And again, the tiny little beats, even during the, you know, the fixed rhythm of a song, the amount, I'm sure he's listening to an audience and reacting to an audience, these micro-reactions without you even knowing. Mm. I love some of the laughs on the live recordings where you don't know why they're there. They're my yeah. favourite. Oh, are, they, are they laughing at something in his face? Yeah, or, you, like a, or a, a fifties reference, sixties reference that, that you've you just missed? don't get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. something in the in New Math where he does. Um, he talks about base eight and having if you've only got eight uh, eight fingers, and then there's a, a little beat and a laugh. So there's obviously some visual thing in there that you don't get when you hear the recording. Oh, because I've heard a version of that where he says. If you've cut off your thumbs, so maybe he's miming cutting off your thumbs or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's he's the lost laugh. Holding up to, I mean, I'm trying to do it now, and this is a podcast, so that's not going to work. <laughs> is there's it? A, Good there's visual a bit gag. in uh, Fight Fearly, Fiercely Harvard too about raising your glasses. Then there's a huge laugh, and I think, well, that's not. I don't. Why is it? Is this just because? Is this a joke about the drinking culture, or is he doing something? Does he have his glasses on his oh, head? Oh, he's probably I, doing that. Isn't I have no idea. But isn't it nice to talk about the conspiracy of laughter and, and, and the tribal nature of laughter? Because you're trusting that Tom Lehrer will be funny yeah. at that point. You hear the people laughing and you don't go, they're idiots suddenly. You go, well, it must be me. I've missed something. Yeah. And it's quite a nice feeling. Again, these are my. this is my tribe. And it, I suppose you're still laughing at that titillating the converted thing. You go, well, I, I, I won't not enjoy that joke because these are my people. Yeah, yeah. He got turned down by several record labels. Um, I think some of them found the Vatican rag a bit inflammatory. And I, I f in fact, didn't someone nearly attack him after a performance over the Vatican oh, really? rag? Someone found it so offensive that they just thought, he said, I'm not taking the piss out of the Pope. I'm taking the piss out of the rituals of Catholicism because they're so covered Life in Brian defense. Life of Brian defense. There's a great, there's a letter um, from Capitol Records to Tom Lehrer that's reproducing the liner notes to the three disc set. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read the capitals for you. Capital <laughs> letters, that is. Mr. Tom Lehrer, Box 121, Cambridge 38, Massachusetts. Dear Mr. Lehrer, I'm sorry to inform you that there is no interest in your album of songs. <laughs> <laughs> So-called music. So-called mathematician. You hear that, do you? <laughs> For 
first you get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, about your head with great respect, and genuflect, 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 do whatever steps you want, if you have cleared them with the pontiff, everybody say his own, Kyrie eleison, doing the Vatican wrong. I've often said to me, Jason, obviously we, we come from a musical background, Jason's a very, very good musician, I'm a musician, uh, <laughs> you've always said that you, you struggle with musical comedy as yeah, a thing. Yeah, I really do, I really do, because, I don't know whether you find this, Luke, but I, could, I sort of feel that I can see everything coming, there are so many signposts and big arrows going this way to the punchline, you know, which I don't get any of in Lara whatsoever. No, unless true, unless yeah, he's yeah. put it in deliberately to go, here comes one of these, you know, which he occasionally does. Actually, that's what tends to be when he does his really stretched puns, when you're yeah. waiting for the end of a line. Very often the jokes are in the middle of a line or, or on the way through, they're passing their grace notes on the way through. When he does head up to a big, cheesy, the rhymes at the end, it's always still a surprise because he's usually going, nothing rhymes with, oh, but if yeah. you pronounce it like that. Yeah. Um, he's quite clever at avoiding the pitfalls of, of musical comedy. Do you struggle with it? I don't like much of it, but mm. then I love some musical comedy. I, I think there's... Does it have to be done well? <laughs> yes, I do. You're so fussy. I know, it's weird, isn't it? I think there's types of... Because there's another skill involved with musical comedy, because you've got a guitar, you can play the guitar, you can do these things, it's actually quite an easy entry point. As long as you can play music or make music happen somehow, audiences are willing to put up with you being on stage doing that. <laughs> You've earned the right to be there. Well, yeah, it's very hard to stand on stage and just trust in being funny. And so yeah. anything you can have as a kind of, no, but it's fine, I've got this as well. I think improv is the same, that there's this, because you have these kind of rules to play by and you can do this thing. It's a very, very low entry point of being able to follow these rules, do this thing, play this instrument, lets me do this, and audiences are willing to put up with that and willing to sit through it. It doesn't mean... There's brilliant examples of both, obviously, but I just think that because it's so easy to get into it, it's a smaller proportion of both, maybe, than yeah. the other things. Yeah. I, it's, it's hard to do it well. I think it's, it's used as a defence. I, I said the same thing. I've always said, I suppose, what you're, the, the shadow hanging over you is, you go, is it going to be tumpty dumpty tumpty dum tumpty dumpty dum You sort of think, oh, it's a bit naff. There's always a musical number on a, a variety show. But I think the funny thing about it is, you, even when you grow up thinking, this is a bit naff and crap, and this is the bit my mum and dad like, that I'm not, it's not very cool. That when you watched a pastiche of it, like the like when Not the Nine O'Clock News did the two ninnies mm-hmm. and took the pee out of the two Ronnie's use of sort of sub Gilbert and Sullivan rumpty tumpty tumpty comedy songs, the parody song they do is absolutely brilliant and I can remember it word for word. Because oddly, even though I protest that I don't like musical comedy, it sticks in my head and when it's done really well, it is still brilliant. <laughs> We're ornithologists, ornithologists. I've got a nice pair of binaconoculars. You can stick there on your tripod. We're marching up and down. Spot, 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 cause the sorting choreographers are what, what, what. I couldn't care a jot if we're military men or not. With a bum, how's your father? I felt I wrote down a list of people I thought were brilliant at it and went... Oh God! There's Randy Newman, and there's God! There's Half Man Half Biscuit. And I started listing them. And I go, there's, I keep saying I don't like it, and I like loads of it. It's one thing I like. The um, probably my favourite bands, or many of my favourite bands, lean towards the comic in their songs. It's also the nice thing about a song which is coming from a band which will do, which will play in the comic arena without trying to call themselves a, well, you know, trying to. I mean, yeah. without 
<laughs> taking themselves down to the level of the comedy song. Um, yeah. Like Sparks or yeah. um, They Might yeah. Be Giants or things like that when, oh, there's a great comic premise there, but you don't feel the need to put in a punchline every yeah. uh, sentence to force this rhyme to get you to the Actually, comic that's point. That's it. It's not for- forcing yourself into that. Sparks are a good example of that, where Pet Shop Boys, there's a sort of dry wit to it, uh, a divine comedy. There's a dry wit to it that I suppose, maybe the question is, can you listen to it again and again? Mm-hmm. Because if you can't listen to it again and again, it's failed on the in the the one of the great appeals of music, which is repetition and familiarity. Tom Lehrer said about about Monty Python. He was interviewed and said, well, "Do you enjoy the stuff that's around at the moment?" He said, "I really like Monty Python." He said, "Because you can just tell they've really thought about the words they use." There's a, there's a there's a comic rhythm in Chris Morris saying, "Later with Suki Baps went on her special brand of things," or over to Peter Hanra Hanrahan. That's got comic rhythm and beats yeah, to it. That's music, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a commonality between music and musical comedy that makes it really odd that both. I think all three of us probably at some point have said, "I hate comedy songs." <laughs> yeah. What? Why? Because music has got comedy in it. And well, I think you've. I think you've. It. I think you've nailed it, though. I think it's about that easy uh, entry level. That's what it is. It's Lazy comedy songs, possibly. Well, I think it's, it's just yeah. It's easy to get to the oh, this will do level mm, yeah. without then yeah. raising it above. Yeah, boy, oh, this Lara as well. I mean, just playing with the actual format and rhythm of the songs as well. So doing something like in the uh, uh, the folk song army, mm. the line where he does a line about having too many syllables in it, you know, like <laughs> Bob Dylan would have done, and make sure that the line has too many syllables in it at the same time, you know. Strum your frustrations away. Some people may prefer action, but give me a folk song any old day. The tune don't have to be clever, and it don't matter if you put a couple extra syllables into a line. It sounds more ethnic if it ain't good English, and it don't even gotta rhyme. Excuse me, rhyme. It's wonderful. What you're doing with, with musical comedy even more strictly than you're doing with all comedy, which is delivering on expectation, that the audience is waiting for because of rhyme structure and, and line length. They know where this is going to end, even more than they do when they're listening to just a normal joke. Uh, and I think a lot of jokes have got a silent tune behind them anyway. They're, they're, they're sprack gazang. Every, every, maybe the truth is that every other comedian is just Rex Harrison and they're just speak singing what's effectively comedy music. But you're playing with the audience expectation, they know where the joke's going to fall and you either land exactly where they expect and they're delighted or you miss it and do a backflip and then land somewhere else and they're delighted. You're always playing with expectation. I suppose what Tom Lehrer's doing is doing it very in a very skilled way over the top of a tune. I think something interesting with um, Flight of the Concords, mm. who... I, I think are brilliant. That who yeah. you know do very very well, and they changed the rules a bit because you, you, Lehrer is all about. I've got this. You know, it's the same as writing a sonnet. I suppose there's yeah. this structure. I need to fit everything into it. Uh, you know, I ha- I've got this. This the song is constructed this way. The jokes need to fit in this song. And Flight the Concords then kept breaking that and coming out with the bits which didn't fit anymore. Spoken bits in the middle. They'd move the change the verse thing around, yeah. and it worked brilliantly. But because I think their dynamic together was so good because they're such a good double act. Yes. And then after that, it's rare to see a comedy song, certainly kind of, I'll put that another way, you often see people trying to do it and forcing the jokes in by breaking the rules of the song, and it's very rarely satisfying. Yeah. Because it's unimpressive and because you really think, oh, I wanted you to put a bit of work in for me. (laughs) I wanted, as an audience, to feel like you've really tried yeah, and it yeah. actually feels like you've taken an, an easy way out 
maybe well, the, the, the thing with comedy music is that the craft is very visible. Yeah. And sometimes when you go and watch someone who is delivering expertly crafted lines in a sketch or a, a piece of character comedy or a, a stand-up routine, you pretend to yourself that this is the first time they've said it. And, mm-hmm. and then it's a delight, delightful surprise that, that for some reason the rhythm of that delivery was absolutely perfect. You go see Eddie Izzard, he looks like he's making it up. Then go and see him another night and you realise he's not really making it up. He's practised where the ums and ers will mm-hmm. fall to hit that rhythm. You've got that, whereas with a comedy song... All the scaffolding is visible because it's a comic song. So you're kind of, you're watching and celebrating the craft in a more open way. So if someone fails at that craft, you judge them really harshly. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. It it all comes back to that making something happen in the room. You've got to feel like you're all in the room together when you're watching comedy, doing comedy. But uh, you notice when when somebody in the audience starts chatting, it's the hardest heckle to deal with. (laughs) And you'll hear everyone else in the audience just get quieter and quieter unless the comedian does something about it. Oh, really? Because I think people don't, know that they've realised this, but what they're realising is, oh, he's not in the same, or she's not in the same, or they're not in the same room as us. They don't know what's going on in this room. They've, they're somewhere else. They're just on stage doing these things because they're not dealing with this problem that we all have. And that's the, for stand-up, the kind of conversational stand-up, the way of doing that is to make it feel somehow like you're having a conversation together, yeah. which is an amazing skill I don't have. And then it's harder and harder to do the more ornate and crafted you get the thing, because when you're doing this thing on stage, which is obviously finessed and built and all the rest of it and you you what's what means this has to be here and couldn't work on a film screen or couldn't yeah. work written down yeah and it's that tiny i think with Lair, it's that tiny little bit of listening it's knowing his reactivity to a crowd effectively what you've got if you've written a ricky ticky little perfect piece of jewel like craft like a tom Lehrer song it could be the equivalent of a backing track. It's, it's He could be on rails. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what you're feeling with the orchestral stuff. It's too well done. What you want to feel is that it could fall apart at yeah. any point. Yeah. For that excitement to be there, which is which is where the kernel of comedy is. And sometimes if you're that feeling, you're right, in the room of the audience breathing and listening and that he might stop or start, people are being attentive and there's a magic in that attentiveness and his attentiveness to them, which I hadn't even thought about. That, that You're right, the live performance of a comic song when Bill Bailey does it or whatever, is so thrilling because it's the opposite of someone singing to a backing track or miming. I found the same thing with the Python album. So when I first, you know, when I watched Flying Circus and the, like the Eric Idle's wonderful money program sketch. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, money, money. There is nothing like a newly minted power. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round just goes into a great big song and dance routine and it's wonderful and then when you hear the recorded version of it that's on one of the albums but uh, there's no audience there you go oh all right yeah <laughs> yeah music is exciting live mm-hmm. so you should yeah, hear that yeah there's a very funny thing with the audience going quiet or going loud i remember doing a mitchell and webb record for the fourth series and we were very very everyone in the writing room was very happy with the fourth series of mitchell and webb and david and rob were delighted with it and we did one recording where the audience just didn't react Mm. to some of the best material we thought we'd written. And we thought, we've got a faithful audience there who like listening to David and Rob, so they'll go with us and we're going to push some stuff out. And it went dead and we were in the green room watching it go out and the audience would be very quiet. And I said to Gareth Edwards, the producer, after I said, Gareth, that was dead. We're going to re-record those sketches next week, aren't we? And he went, no, they're fine. And I said, but no one laughed. He went, they were listening. And I said, well, that, that'll sound terrible on television, an audience just listening. And he said, you can still sense they're there because they laugh occasionally. He said, when you're at home, 
you're listening as well. The last thing you're going to want is be deafened by those idiots <laughs> laughing over the lines. And I went, really? And he said, yeah, that's what his experience was. You need a bit of audience to show there's some air in the room. But if it's deafening, he said he used to take all the laughs out of Bleak Expectations because it started to sound hysterical and it started <laughs> to push people at home away from that crowd. It felt like a Nuremberg rally. Like, yeah. oh, oh my God, I don't want to be in this tribe. And it's it's the, the amount of audience, the amount of laughter you need. And sometimes the sound you want from an audience is silence and attentiveness yeah. and then release. And it, it, it's it's a very delicate yeah, it's interesting. balance. I, I think it's quite old-fashioned in a way. And, you know, it's uh, you listen to old shows which have studio recordings and so often there are these big quiet patches and they haven't fixed it. And it's much, much nicer to listen to because you realise you don't care. Yeah, you're not yeah. listening. You're not waiting for that audience to tell you what's funny. Yeah, well, the you're audience, allowed to listen as well. Yeah, at home you go. Well, I don't need this noise. And, and Gareth said it's a very, very delicate balance of of not putting off an audience at home. It's a very hard thing to do, and it leads to uh, you do want for most for a lot of comedy does need an audience. And the last thing you want to do is pull it out. It's interesting the way that people reacted to the second series of I'm Alan Partridge where The Office had come out between Series 1 and Series 2. And people said, why have they put a laugh track and on Alan Partridge? Yeah, yeah. And there was one on Series 1. And I think I remember watching it and realising they'd mixed it a little bit too high. Mm-hmm. And so it sounded... It was probably the same volume as the first series, but it seemed too high. You were used to silence in, in comedy of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And then when they put the DVD out, they mixed it a couple of dBs quieter. Right. And it's delightful. <laughs> and it's just as delicate as that. You didn't feel put off by that audience. A lot of the time you don't remember it. Like, I, I think I rewatched The League of... League of Gentlemen, not remembering that there was a laugh. Yes, uh, and loads an of studio stuff. Yeah, mm. and, and you can see that actually their performances really benefit from having an audience there. Yeah, like that's the kind of yeah. Um, but you don't remember it after the fact. I think people. I'm sure people complain about why have you put this laugh track on this thing? No, no, it was there. It was always there. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that there was a fashion for saying it was done. It was added to shows that that an audience were too stupid to work out what they laughed. The point of the laughter is for the performance. It's to, so that it's to let the actors know where they're... so they can listen mm, to yeah. an audience reacting to what they're doing. It's not for the... So putting a laugh... Getting an audience in to see a screening of something, I, I still... I've, I'm really not convinced that it's pointful. Yeah. You know, recording something as if there's an audience there and then playing it to an audience, I think always sounds off one way or another because... It's not having any effect on yeah. the actors. I think we went to we've been to a couple of audience recordings for things where it was done to persuade the executives that the show was funny, right. and then was taken off for the actual broadcast. Peter Serafinovich's show was recorded in without a laugh track, and then a laugh track was added. We were in the audience for a added laugh track, and then when it was broadcast, the laugh track was taken off. And I think it was just to persuade people there were jokes in it because Peter's weird. Um, <laughs> the Christmas specials was I think that had laugh, laugh track on laugh, there yeah. because they kept losing faith in it because again you want Peter's a good live performer but he wasn't in any of those sketches reacting to an audience mm-hmm. so having people laugh over the top of it just looked you're right it looks weird you can you can tell it's like uh, Uncanny Valley in in animation it looks mm-hmm. too slick there's something unconvincing and roboty about dubbing laughter on top of a performance that didn't already have it when so, I when we uh when I dug out my Tom Lehrer albums to have a re-listen for this podcast, I put on That Was The Year That Was. Um, and as soon as it had finished, I put it on again because I fucking loved being in that gig. I loved that gig and I was at that gig with that audience. Yeah. You know, it's wonderful. It's a really immersive experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does the thing that the peril of comedy songs is that they're clever. And if something's clever, clever, it gets smug. And maybe that's 
the thing that putting the audience in there takes out is that you're watching this guy who is a mathematically precise, clever guy showing off his dexterity on the flying piano trapeze. And the audience laughing warms it and his reaction to the audience warms it and takes what could be the sterility of a clever performance, takes a bit of the curse off it. Because I imagine there's a way of doing any comic song that makes it unbearable. I think it's probably through the offensiveness too, isn't it? That there's this just aspect of community there yeah. mm. takes the uh, edge off somehow. Well, he said his job was to do comedy and his idea was that comedy was, that was necessary because mm-hmm. comedy kept you sane. So the sound of a community of people reacting to this song makes it sound like that it's performing a community service. It makes it seem necessary and vital. Because he's talking about important things, life and death and 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 not lying and being honest with yourself and, and your own fragility and things. People laughing with it makes you feel that he's not just showing off that he can make words rhyme. That's something funny. You know the line sliding down the razor blade of life? Mm. <laughs> I remember that, like... I remember that being in his patter between songs and almost, I think, started to have an argument with something, someone about it. Adam Kay, who was doing a show of, who was playing the songs every day. And I was going, no, no, it's between the songs. And then listening again, oh, wow, that's, that's a lyric in the middle of a song. I'd always, because I'd remembered him like saying that in his arch way yeah. between a thing and the audience roaring with laughter before he started another. It's just in the middle of a... A song and a song I'm not particularly fond of. <laughs> <laughs> He's only written 37 and you're picking the I'm worst sorry, ones. I'm sorry, or is it 50? But what an amazing line. Like, I, I think of it almost every day. <laughs> I wonder what it would have been like to be at one of his lectures. God, yeah. He must have been a dynamite lecturer, mustn't he? I wonder if people signed up for his course who just wanted him to do the songs. <laughs> and then turned out to be an awful lot of differential calculus and maths and yeah. algebra. Do you know what his last lecture was about? No. Infinity. What a dude. That's, that's vamped what to fade, dude. isn't it? I bet everyone just didn't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great place to leave it, isn't it? That's perfect. Let's end, let's end on infinity. Let's, let's ride off into the sunset <laughs> on our pianos. Lovely. Oh, thank you for thank having you, me. Thank you, John Luke Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.